So the title of my message this morning is, Is God Anti-Feminist? Um, definitely an interesting topic, but as we get into 1 Corinthians 11, just to kind of give a little bit of background, a little bit of leeway, we're coming to the end now of when he's talking about Christian liberty. So Paul has been talking about Christian liberty. Uh, the, the Corinthian church had some questions about uh, as far as what do you do when you have uh, in a culture that's idol- idolatrous, where idolatry is huge, how do you walk with God in that culture and yet not engage in idolatry? How, what is the uh, balance you find? And, and in chapters um, 8, 9, and 10, he really goes in depth on Christian liberty. And he uses phrases like, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And he talks about how in that culture, there's what you would have the equivalent, and I don't want to, I'm just going to nickname it an idol feast. (laughs) But you would have a a party or a feast that would take place at an idol's temple. And it was very common. It would be something that you would go to, uh, let's say you had gotten a new job or had gotten a promotion and you would wanted to celebrate it. And you would go and you would have a celebration, a feast at this idol's temple and you would offer a sacrifice and then you would have this feast of this uh, meat that had been offered to idols in that culture. And so Paul kind of lays down some ground rules because some of the Christians were starting to feel like, well, should I go there? Should I not? Should I do this? Should I not? Should I eat this meat that's been offered to idols or should I not? And it's so interesting because uh, many times we can find ourselves in those situations, right? Should I watch this movie or should I not? Should I go to this place or should I not? Should I listen to this or should I not? Should I do this or should I not? And it's interesting because Christian liberty, it really helps us navigate those things without becoming religious. Man, there's some people that walk around completely bummed out in their relationship with God. And the reason they're bummed out in their relationship with God is they have all of these rules that they put on themselves. They have all of these religion. I've met people that don't uh, dance. I mean, I think I had shared with you guys that, sto- that story. Did I share with you guys that story? Yeah. You know, people that don't believe in dancing. And, and hey, like if that's your conviction, that's okay. But to live and to operate in a relationship with God where there's just rules on top of rules on top of rules on top of rules... It's not healthy, and it, 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 uh, it chokes out your relationship with God. See, because what God desires is what? God desires fellowship. He desires a relationship with us. He desires intimate fellowship. He doesn't desire us to be robots that walk around and live uh, by the book code, and I do all of these things, and I don't do all of these things. He wants a relationship, but in order for that relationship to be vibrant, Man, in order for that relationship to be authentic, there needs to be that freedom there. Now, many of us have been there where maybe you feel guilty or maybe you feel condemned about things and you find yourself feeling down and out because maybe you didn't, uh, you know, do something or maybe you did something, vice versa, and you just feel like this constant condemnation. But see, the condemnation was removed when we gave our lives to Christ because the Bible says that there is therefore now no condemnation. But being that there's no condemnation, now that relationship with God, listen, it is a relationship. But in order for that relationship to really blossom and really flourish, there has to be freedom. There can't be rules. There can't be regulations. There has to be freedom. But with that freedom... Like what we learned so in-depthly, there comes warnings. And those warnings are to be careful not to use that freedom as an opportunity for what? For vice. Not to use that freedom as a reason to say, well, I'm free so I can do whatever I want. There's warnings that the Bible gives us so that way we don't destroy our relationship with God. That way our relationship with God doesn't get messed up. Because that can happen so often. There's so many people that kind of flirt with Christian liberty and flirt with it a little too much. And then before you know it, you don't see them and they're right back in the world. See that freedom in Christ that we have, it is a freedom that we have to be able to enjoy that relationship with God. 
but it comes with those warnings. Now he moves into this next chapter, this next portion of Scripture, and here's Paul, and he's going to be talking about restoring order in the church. And as we move into this next section, he talks about really order in church services. See, the church of Corinth, like what we talked about, they had a lot of questions. They had a lot of things that they were working through. And one of those things they were working through is their, the order in their church services was kind of out of, I don't want to say out of order. I don't want to say out of whack. <laughs> I got to do it. I got to stop using slang. I have to. But I'm going to use it anyway. Their services were out of whack. Their services were chaotic, and so Paul is, is writing there to show them, like, hey, there needs to be order in the church. Why? Because God is not a God of confusion. And I think that's so important to remember in our personal lives, and I was thinking about this, because in our personal lives, a lot of times what happens is, is we can be confused about situations. Maybe we can be confused about, man, God, do you really want me to do this or not? Do you want me to take this step or not? Do you want me, what do you want me to do? And we can find ourselves confused. It's important to understand that the Bible says that God is not the author of confusion, that confusion is not from the Lord. What is from the Lord is peace and truth. And those things will always guide you. Man, when you have that relationship with God, and when that relationship with God is vibrant, and then when that relationship with God is going, and when that relationship with God is, is fruitful, what you have happen, what you have happened is you have peace in your life. You're not frustrated about your decisions. You're not frustrated and trying to figure out, Lord, is this you or not? You have the peace of God that guards your hearts and your minds. See, peace, not confusion, is from the Lord. And maybe you're praying about something this morning, or maybe you're thinking about taking a step or doing something. It's important to always know, listen, it's not, you don't have to roll dice or try and figure out, like, what is God's will for my life. It's very simple. It's, is your heart right with God? And if it is, then do you have peace in your life? And if you have peace in your life, then you're okay. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14, 40, to let all things be done decently and in order. And as he gets into chapter 11, he's going to hit on a couple of things. He's going to talk about women in the church, and he's going to talk about communion. He's going to talk about the Lord's Supper. And when looking at scriptures, just like what we were kind of talking about before service, it's important to understand what? It's important to understand and discern what is cultural and what is not. Because there's some parts of the Bible that you read, like the portion we're going to read this morning, when Paul is writing to the church of Corinth and he's saying, hey, he's saying if, if a woman is worshiping without a veil on her head, that is cultural, right? I don't know how many of you guys, when, we're, when you're out and about in Portland, see women walking around with veils over their heads. You just don't, you, you don't, right? None of us in here have a veil over our head. It's a cultural situation, and when you look at culture, and you look at the Bible, and you come to a cultural situation, it's important to understand what, that within that cultural situation, there's usually a principle there. There's usually a principle that we can pull out, that we can apply, that we can learn from. And just to kind of reiterate in talking really about women and Christianity and the Bible and what the Bible has to say about women. And I think it's important because I think that the Bible has wrongfully received the credit for our culture's treatment of women. What do I mean by that? When you look throughout history, you see that, listen, churches are not perfect in how they have treated women's rights. You see that cultures as a whole, even down to the traditional Jewish culture at the time of Christ, women's rights were not really what God had intended them to be. And because of that, what you have happened is, is you have the culture, our culture today, is looking at the church, and they're looking at God, and they're looking at the Bible, and they're looking at Christians, and they're saying, you guys are anti-feminists. You guys are against women's rights. Without really looking and saying, well, what does the Bible teach? There's a story that Chuck Smith told, and it always hit me, and it's a story 
where he said that he would have had a professor in college one time, and this professor was telling him, hey, Chuck, you know, the, the church is messed up. Why would I want to follow God? Look at the Crusades. Look at church history. Look at everything that happened. Why would I want to follow that God? And Chuck reminded him, like, hey, Christians aren't perfect, and church history is not perfect, but Jesus is perfect. God is perfect. And how Jesus treated people is often a lot different than how the culture and church history has treated people over the years. So when you look at it and you kind of get a, a good um, look at what the Bible teaches, it's actually interesting because when, at the time the Bible was written, women's rights were at an all-time low. Culturally, like what we had talked about a little bit ago, culturally, uh, in a Greek and in Roman culture, a woman had a little bit higher status than a slave. A woman was not allowed to be out and about without a veil, without a covering. A woman was not allowed to be out and about um, by herself. She had to have a male companion or a male escort to escort her to the store. Could you imagine being a woman and you needed to go get groceries and you couldn't go out by yourself. You had to wait for someone to come and take you there and take you back. If, let's say you're married and let's say your husband had people over, right? You would have to go to the room. You wouldn't be able to be involved in that social gathering. Many uh, husbands in that culture, they would have a wife for bearing children. They would have a mistress and they would have several mistresses on the side. Women's rights were at an all-time low in that culture. And what does the Bible do? The Bible comes in and Paul writes in Galatians, what does he say? He says that there is no male or female in Christ. We're all one. He says there's no Jew or Gentile. There's no slave or free. There, we're all one. It, Christianity levels the playing field. It's interesting when you track Christianity and you track the missionary efforts of different missionaries and different missionary organizations over the years, you see what? You see that wherever Christianity has gone, women's rights have, have been elevated. See, again, historical Christianity and church history, and a lot of times people look at church history and then they look at us and they say, well, you guys are this, that, and the other. But the truth is, is biblical Christianity is so different from what people look at us and assume and judge nowadays. And I think we need to get back to biblical Christianity. I think that's one of the biggest problems of our society today is present day Christianity looks different than biblical Christianity. Present-day Christianity will often look different than biblical Christianity. See, most people have never read the Bible. So their interpretation of God, their interpretation of Christianity, what does it do? It comes from us. Man, people were around. Their views on Christianity, their view of Christians is formed by what? It's formed by us. And I think of Moses, and it's, it's very, very important not to misrepresent God to the people around us. And I think of Moses. You guys remember the story of Moses, right? He came out, and he's leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, and they get thirsty. They want a little bit of water. And what happens? They start complaining to Moses, and Moses is like, God, what do you want me to do? This people that you brought, they're complaining, they're murmuring, they're saying they want water. They just have had water. They're threatening of stone me. What do you want me to do? Moses got a little bit heated, right? And as Moses is a little bit heated, what happens? God said, Moses, it's okay. Just go ahead. Speak to the rock. The rock will open forth and bring forth water so the people could drink. And what happens? Moses goes. He's like, speak to the rock. Okay, yeah, sure. Hey, listen up, children of Israel. Bam! And he whacks the rock. <laughs> He whacks the rock with his staff three times, and water comes forth. And God, after he said, hey, Moses, I need to talk to you for a second. He said, you know, he said, you misrepresented me to the people. He said, you portrayed me as an angry God by your actions when I wasn't angry with them. 
And I think that's something important to remember is people will interpret Christianity based on their encounters with us. And especially if they know we're a Christian. And I think sometimes we can misrepresent God to people. And we need to be careful not to misrepresent God. See, what the world needs is more biblical Christianity, not more churches, not more cultural Christianity, but more biblical Christianity. And to go back to that question, like, is God anti-feminist? No, God is not anti-feminist. In fact, the Bible is full of many great women leaders in both the Old and the New Testaments. It's interesting, when you read Hebrews 11, right, that hall of faith, right there alongside the likes of Samson and all of these great biblical heroes, Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob, you have David, all of these uh, biblical characters. What do you also have? You also have women right there alongside as well. Again, you have the teachings of the Bible, which are revolutionary at the time they were written. Man, revolutionary for women's rights. There are only a few things that the Bible tells us that are off limits for women to do, and they are roles in the church. They have nothing to do with a woman in society. That's it. And those three things are simple. The Bible says for a woman not to teach a man. The Bible says for a woman not to have authority over a man. And the Bible says that the role of a pastor or an elder is reserved just for a man. But that's it. And like I said, there's many great examples throughout church history, throughout the Bible, of women that have done amazing things for God. And it doesn't say that a a woman can't get up there and share her testimony. In fact, we need more women involved in the church, as we're going to see this morning. And we need more women to step up and to serve God. Serving God is not just for men. Like I said, there's these three things here that are, you know, (laughs) you okay? (laughs) I heard that one. (laughs) There are certain things that are maybe the Bible says are, are limited for men, those three roles. But listen, again, like we said, they are roles in the church. They are not roles in society. They are roles within the church. See, and it's important to understand, too, is that being a man doesn't automatically qualify us for these roles. Like, it's not just like, okay, you're a man, you're pastor material. No, you're a man, you can be an elder, you can teach it. No, 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 that's not the case. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Being a man doesn't automatically qualify you for anything within Christ. There's two things that are essential, and that's your calling, and that is your qualifications, and neither of those have anything to do with what we talk about when we say qualifications, like for a job, like school, or none of those things. See, there's some people who have that calling, and what is a calling? Listen, we all have a calling, but not all of us are called to serve God in a pastoral ministry. And the Bible says that God has chosen us, that he has invited us to serve. That's what a calling is. A calling is that invitation to serve. It's that invitation that, hey, I have chosen you to serve me. It's that invitation to serve him. That's what a calling is. And like I said, everyone has a calling for something, but it doesn't always mean that everyone has a calling to be a pastor. And then what does it mean to be qualified? Listen, qualifications For ministry, all it has to do with is it deals with your life and with your character. That's it. When you read 1 Timothy 3, you see that the qualifications there, none of them have anything to do with where you went to school, how long you've been in church, if you grew up in church or not. What it has to do everything with is how we live our lives. Man, with our character. See, there are many people that are called, there are many people that have been called by God to serve him, that have been invited, and God is like, hey, I want you to serve me, but they have disqualified themselves by their lives. And then there's other people who are qualified. Man, they're those people that you see, you're like, man, this is just an upstanding guy. But they don't have that calling. God has not called them to serve in ministry. See, and it's that balance. Man, ministry, it's about calling and it's about 
being qualified. And like I said, the qualifications have nothing to do with, uh, with schooling and education. The qualifications have everything to do with our lives. And see, because the Bible is not anti-women or not anti-feminist, what he's about to talk about in this chapter is what? It's cultural. It's simply cultural. Now go ahead and follow along in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Notice what he says. He says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things. And keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So he starts off by saying, I'm sorry, I missed it, in verse 1. <laughs> Chapter 11, verse 1. He says what? He says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And I love it so much because living, he's talking about living our faith and being an example. Man, and is your life and is my life one that we would want others to imitate? Think about that. Right? Many of us maybe grew up and maybe we had uncles or maybe we had a cousin or maybe we had someone that we knew that we really like looked up to that we thought just, oh man, I just want to be like them. And then you start talking to them and what do they tell you? Mijo, you don't want to be like me, right? Man, sometimes we have role models and some of those role models are into things that they shouldn't be into. And what do they always tell you? They say, hey, don't be like me when you grow up. And here Paul is saying what? See, because as people, we are geared to follow examples. And as people, we always look at people that we, we idolize. And especially in our culture with social media, we look at influencers and we look at things and we say, I want to be like them. I want to model my Instagram page after them. I want to dress like how they dress. We're geared and conditioned to follow the examples of others and the best thing we can do is to live in such a way that we can encourage others like, hey, like, follow me, imitate me. Instead of turning people away like, oh, man, you don't want to be like me. No, let's live in such a way that we can look at others and say, hey, like, imitate me as what? As I imitate Christ. As I follow Christ. And then he says in verse 2, he says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I deliver them to you. What are the traditions he's talking about here? Man, the traditions he's talking about here, he's not talking about all of these rules and regulations and traditions. A better way of saying that would be, here's Paul saying, hey, like, I, I, I'm thankful that you guys are keeping all of the teachings that I, I taught you, all of the lessons that you learned, all of the things that, you, that I taught. He says, you're continuing in them. He says, you're continuing in those lessons and those principles. And then in verse 3, he says what? He says, but I want you to know, brethren. He says, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now here he's talking about the God-ordained order structure within a marriage. And it starts with what? It starts with a man being submitted to Christ. It's interesting. He doesn't start with the women. He starts with what? He starts with the men. We taught about this a couple weeks ago, right? When we took a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 on marriage, and we saw how as men, we set the tone. We set the tone for our marriages. Man, we set the tone for our relationships. And I'm talking to myself right now. <laughs> But as men, what? We set the tone for our relationships. We set the tone for our marriages. And he says what? He says, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. Listen, a man is to be in submission to Christ 110%. And what is that submission? Listen, it's willing submission to the authority of another out of love as a response. That's what it is. It's saying, God, because you have, because of everything you have done for me, I, and because I love you back, I'm going to willingly submit my life under your authority. That's hard to do. 
It's hard to do, especially because we can find ourselves so often, especially as men, we can find ourselves what? We can find ourselves more, more free-spirited than anybody else. It's like, no one controls me. No one's going to tell me what to do. We have that mentality oftentimes. But see, God doesn't desire forced submission. God is not about that. He's not about like, oh, well, you, you, you're going to defy me. Like, well, I'm going to force you to surrender. That's not God. What God desires is God desires willful submission out of love. I would venture to say that if we don't love God, listen, it, it would be better... Well, actually, I don't even want to go there. I don't want to, I don't want to get caught up on a tangent. But God is not about forced submission. He's not trying to force us to obey his will. What does he want? He continues to invite us. And that is why often when we are running from God or when we're drifting from God, what happens? You start to notice, it's almost like you start to feel sad a little bit. You're like, man, I miss God. I miss church. I miss him. Why? Because he's calling out to us. It's that invitation to come back. It's that invitation to willfully surrender. It's not him coming after us like, well, I'm going to get you and you're going to serve me whether you like it or not. No, it's that willful invitation of, hey, like, I know you've left, but I want you to come back. It's that love. See, everything God does is motivated by love. Why? Because God is love. He doesn't just show love. He is love. And what does God desire back from us? Listen, he desires that willful submission, that willful surrender out of love. Again, I think many times as men, we have that no one can control me mentality. I'm going to blaze my own path. But that's often why as men, we make dumb mistakes. We make dumb mistakes because of our pride. We think, man, we know what we're doing. We, we know better. We find ourselves making all of these mistakes. Listen, God desires that we would willfully bring our lives under submission to him. Willfully. Under his authority. See, that's what it starts with. Notice again, verse 3. Paul says, but I want you to know that the head of every man is what? Is Christ. And then he says, and the head of every woman is man. So see, the authority of every man, that every man should submit under is Christ. And the authority, the head or the authority of a woman is a man. Now listen, the Bible does teach that in marriage, a woman is to be in submission to her husband. But what does that mean? What does that mean? It does not mean that you are to be your husband's slave. It does not mean that you are to be under his authoritarian control or authoritarian rule. Some men are very controlling. Kind of rule with like an iron fist. Well, I want my dinners at 5 p.m. and if it's at 5.30, then there's a problem. I've heard of stories of men who have gone ballistic because the wife brought home the wrong type of milk from the grocery store. See, it's not talking about just being submitted to this authoritarian ruler over you. That's not what it's talking about. What it means, and it goes back to Ephesians chapter 5, where the Bible sheds some more light on this. And the Bible says this, Ephesians chapter 5, it's a lengthy portion of Scripture, but I'm going to read it because I feel that it's important. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. And then he says this, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, 
not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Very simply put, right? He says, hey, he says, a wife within the marriage, within marriage, is to what? Is to be in submission to her husband. But then he says what? He says, but that husband... (laughs) That husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. See, it's that balance there. See, and that is God's design. See, God's design is that the man would be in living a life that is in submission to him. And because he loves God and because he is living in submission to God, what is he going to do? He is going to then love his wife as Christ loved the church. To serve her, to wash her with the water of the word. Man, to be concerned about her spiritual well-being. To care for her. And then as a response, what is the wife to do? The wife is to then bring to herself, again, that word submit, what does it mean? It's submission. It doesn't mean obeying every single command unquestioned. It doesn't mean like, oh, yes, sir. <laughs> you know, I'm here, sir. What do you need? Like, it, that's not what it means It means to literally to bring yourself underneath his umbrella or his authority. It's this picture of submission. Bringing yourself underneath. Colossians chapter 3 verse 18 and 19 just kind of solidifies this when it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then it says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. See, when there is that love that is there, that serving of the wife that is there, that washing her with the water of the word, and then in turn there is that submission, that is God's design. And then he gives this beautiful example of Christ in verse 3. It says, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. It's this picture of God and Christ, right? We know the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the what? The Holy Spirit. You have the Father, you have the Son, you have the Holy Spirit, and all three are what? They are working together. They are all co-equal. They are all one. They are all co-equal. And yet when Jesus, the Bible says that what he emptied himself, he came down, he took on the form of a servant, he lived a sinless life, and it was in that state that he did what? That he said that beautiful prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, man, he said, Father, if there's any way that this can pass from me, let it be. But if not, what? If not, let your will be done. It's this act of willful submission. Doesn't mean that he's any less than God. Some Jehovah's Witnesses will try and take this verse and they'll try and take it out of context, but no, that's not what it means. It's this beautiful picture of willing surrender within the Trinity, within this unity of God. So I think many times what we've come to condition ourselves to think is, we've, is our culture has kind of conditioned us to think, well, women are less than men. No, women are not less than men. But God's design is what? God's design is this picture of a man being submitted to God, loving his wife, and in return the wife, bringing herself underneath the husband's authority and leadership uh, in submission out of love. And there's harmony there. A marriage can work that way. And that is why who we marry is the most important decision. The most important decision. Because to be in the perfect, it's like like that old saying. The perfect marriage can be heaven below. The The wrong marriage can be hell on earth. And it's so true. So true. So you see God's design there. And then what does he go on to say? It is God's design. And then he says in verse 4, he says, For every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Now here we start getting into the cultural stuff. Then he says in verse 5 though, he says, But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered 
dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn, but it is shameful. Shorn means, you know, her hair's cut, she's, her hair is shaved. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head since he is in the image, of the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now, interesting that it says this, right? Now, you start getting into the culture. What's he talking about when he says, hey, he says, if a woman's in the church and they're praying, they're prophesying, make sure that they don't have their head uncovered. Why? What's the big deal, right? This is the thing that was happening in that church. See, I want to point out one thing first. Is you see that women are encouraged to participate in the church. He doesn't say, hey, women, don't pray and prophesy in the church. No, what does he say? He says if a woman is praying or if they're prophesying, if a woman is involved in the church, listen, the church is stronger when women are involved. It really is. Man, look at Jesus' ministry. You had Jesus, you had the disciples, you had the apostles. And then, man, there was this team of women that was really the, the backbone of Jesus' ministry. Making sure everything was taken care of. Listen, God has, has gifted men and women different, but their gifts are meant to what? Complement each other. It's meant to fulfill each other. So see, the church is a place, the church is not a place where only men can be involved. The church is a place for everyone to be involved. And then going into the culture, what do you see in that culture? You see that in Eastern culture, women would wear veils. They still do it today, right? And it was a symbol of modesty, among other things, the reason why they would wear those veils. But it was cultural. It was in that culture. You don't really see that today. Like I said earlier, right? You don't see that in Portland. Like You're not walking out. You see people with hoods on because it's raining all the time. But you don't see people with veils, right? You don't see women with veils, with covering over their heads. It was cultural to that time, but it was a symbol of modesty. It was a symbol of modesty. It was a symbol of a woman that was wearing this veil. Why? Because they wanted to be reserved only for her husband to see and admire her beauty. It was a symbol of modesty. Not only that, but listen, in Corinth, like what we had talked about, you had the temple of Aphrodite, in the temple of Aphrodite, it would sit on top of a hill and you would have a thousand prostitutes every night that would go into the city. And one of the ways that you would know if a woman was a prostitute in the city of Corinth is they would be unveiled and they would have their head shaven. Again, it's a cultural situation. So when you would see a woman in that city, if you were walking through that city and you saw a woman and she did not have a veil and her head was shaved, what it literally meant was it literally meant that she was basically saying like, hey, I'm available. It was she was kind of like putting herself out there as being available as either a prostitute or just someone who was available. So why is Paul bringing this up? He's saying, hey, he's saying you have some women in the church that don't have a veil on. They're serving in the church. They don't have a veil on. Their heads are uncovered. Maybe their heads are even shaven. And he's saying it's dangerous. And what does he say that happens? He says it dishonors their head. He's not talking about it dishonoring their physical head. He's saying, hey, he's saying it's a dishonor for their husbands. He's saying it's a dishonor to their husbands. Now, it's very possible that some of the women in that church felt that Christian liberty, right, to dress however they wanted. Remember, Paul has just finished talking about Christian liberty, and Christian liberty is what? All things are lawful for me. There are very little rules. In fact, there are no rules in Christianity, right? It's relationship. There's that liberty. There's that freedom there. But with that freedom also comes what? With that freedom also comes warning. So it is very possible that some of the women in the church of Corinth felt that liberty to dress however they wanted to dress. They felt that liberty to maybe dress unveiled or, or maybe dress a little bit more revealing. See, Christian liberty, it's freedom, but it's not freedom to be flaunted like what we learned about. 
Paul the Apostle said it so plainly. He said, hey, he said, if eating meat is going to cause someone to stumble, I won't ever eat meat again. But yet today we have so many people that are flaunting their Christian liberty. It's almost like, well, I have the Christian liberty to do this. And who are you to judge me? Who are you to tell me? But listen, that's not Christian liberty. Why? Because that is not walking in love. Man, God's desire is that we would walk in love above all else. See, Christian liberty, it's freedom, but it's not freedom to be flaunted. And even though we may have the liberty to dress however we like, how we dress matters. That is what he is saying. He is saying to this church, he's saying, hey, he's saying you have the liberty to dress however you want to dress. There's no rules that say you have, this is the dress code of Christians. There's that old saying, right, church clothes. You have your church clothes that you put on on Sunday. There is no dress code to being a Christian. There's no dress code for any of that. But what does he say? He says this. He says, you are free to dress however you want to do, but how you dress matters. Why? Because it is a dishonor to your husband for you to have, for your appearance to be like that. See, and this is culturally unpopular in our society today. Man, provocative dress is being encouraged as an example of women's what? Empowerment. It's what? It's flaunt yourself. Man, flaunt your body. Put your body out there. Show your body to the world. And it's, it's celebrated, it's encouraged, it's embraced in our culture. But what's interesting is this, is listen, true women's empowerment is not in how a woman dresses, but it's in the impact that a woman has on those around her. Man, that is women's empowerment. I always think of Esther. Man, Esther is probably one of my favorite characters in the Bible. Why? Because Esther was a woman who literally saved. God didn't, a bunch of men in that culture, God, who did God choose? God chose a woman, uniquely placed her right next to the king, positioned so that way she could save who? She could save her entire nation. Think about the impact that she had. Her entire nation was saved because of how she lived. And that is a woman of impact. See, a woman's character, a woman's impact, that is the greatest example of woman's empowerment. That is the greatest example of women's empowerment. Well, where does modesty come in? How does modesty fit in all this? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, it says this, that in like manner also, he, he says, I encourage that in like manner also, women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Again, Braids are fine. He's just, <laughs> it's just cultural, okay? This is cultural. Braids are fine. But he says, not with braided hair or gold pearls or costly clothing. He says, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Man, what does he say that a woman should be known by? Listen, not by her appearance, but by her character. Man, that is amazing. That a woman should be known not by her appearance, but by her character. Could you imagine if we taught that in our society today, how different our women would be? I, my heart breaks because I think about uh, how our culture is destroying all of these young women because we put such an emphasis on appearance over character. Man, we have young women who are trying to look a certain way and they're valuing themselves based on how they look rather than their character. It's so sad. Man, these young women who are trying to meet their standard and their value, that they look at themselves and they have no value if they don't look a certain way or if they don't dress a certain way. And what do we do? We just encourage it as a culture. Rather than looking at it and saying, hey, a woman 
should not be known by her appearance, should not be respected or valued by her appearance, but by her character. It's sad when we live in a culture that if a woman doesn't look a certain way or act a certain way or be a certain way or be a certain way with men, that a woman cannot, um, is not respected or is not valued or is not cherished. And see, the whole message of the Bible is that a woman should not be known and judged and valued by her appearance, but that a woman should be known and judged and valued by her character. Again, we wonder why all of these young youths are wondering, are struggling with depression and anxiety, with low self-esteem. We're teaching them that their value is in their appearance and not in their character. See, Paul here, he is encouraging what? He is encouraging modesty. He is encouraging character. The amazing thing is, is when you have a relationship with someone that is in the Lord and it's the spouse that God has prepared for you and he brings it together in his time and he brings you that husband and he brings you that wife, there is a beautiful celebration that takes place and it's that celebration then of, a, of the appearance of that person. See, modesty, listen, modesty never goes out of style. Verse 8, notice what he says. He says, For a man is not from a woman, but woman is from man. He's referring to what? He's referring to in the book of Genesis when God put Adam in a deep sleep and he took one of Adam's ribs and he took that rib and from it he created woman. And then in verse 9, what does it say? Follow along. It says, Nor was man created for woman, but woman for the man. And then he flips it, though. Notice. He says, For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. He says, Nevertheless, is man independent of woman? No, 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 I'm sorry. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man. What? In the Lord. Very, very important verse. Why? Because you read that and you read how a, a woman was created from man, right? God took the rib, created woman, and you're very tempted to think what? That women are subpar, that men are independent. But the truth is, is no, he says, he says men and women, they are not independent from each other. They're not designed to be independent in the Lord. Like what we talked about earlier, they're designed to complement one another. It's interesting, again, we live in a culture where what is being encouraged and what is being pushed is that women need to be independent of men. And there are some cases where that is 100% true. Listen, if the man is a jerk, the woman needs to be independent of the men. But I think it's important to understand what? It's important to understand that in God's design, the way that God designed it, the way that God would have it to be is what? Is God would have it to be that a man and a woman are not independent, not two separate entities, but what? That there is unity there. That there is oneness. And that there is complementary... Um, that there is comp that they complement each other. That is God's design. In closing, follow along as he says here. He says, For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. And then he says, judge, for your, judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? Notice it doesn't say that if a man has long hair, it's a sin. <laughs> it says if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor. 
It's funny. Uh, I was listening to Chuck, how he was breaking this scripture down. And Chuck talked about how back in the hippie days, all of the hippies had beards and they all had really, really, really long hair. The guys had long flowing hair. Um, and so like Rapunzel. <laughs> and so Chuck said that he would have a lot of people that would come and be like, hey, you know, didn't you know the Bible says that if a man has long hair, that it's a dishonor? And Chuck would say, no, it's not a sin. It's just a dishonor. It's against nature, but it's not a sin. And it's true. Man, God, the Bible, the whole message of the Bible is what? Is that God does not look at the outside. God looks at what? He looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. And then he says this. He says, but if a woman has long hair, in verse 15, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Basically, what is he saying? He's saying, hey, he's saying it's not an issue that is worth debating over. If a woman or a man should have long hair or short hair, he's saying we have no custom in the church of that. Again, just think the main theme here, the main message is what? Be modest. God's design for a relationship, God's design for a marriage is what? Is a man being in submission to God, out of love, willful submission? A man loving and serving his wife as Christ loved and served the church? And then the woman bringing herself underneath that man's leadership in the home and in ministry? And when it's, as God designed it, what there's nothing better. There is no greater blessing than to have a marriage as God designed it. And it's within that that you have what? That you have a, a, a woman who's, what, who's not desiring to bring dishonor to her husband. You have a woman who out of love is what? Is going to be modest. Why? Because a woman should not be known for how she dresses. That should not be the reason. We should not dress to be noticed or dress to gain attention from the opposite sex. We should what? As a woman, a woman should be known for what? For her character and for her good works, for how she lives her life. Those are the things that should be celebrated. And those are the things that should have value. Not in how a woman looks, but what? In the character of their heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Welcome to the Portland City Church Podcast. We are a brand new church in the city of Portland, Oregon. Here you'll find all of our weekly messages, so make sure to subscribe and turn on your notifications to stay updated. The study you are about to listen to is from our series on 1 Corinthians called Lost Church. If you're encouraged by this message, we would love to hear about it. Feel free to reach out to us on social media or through our website, portlandcitychurch.org. We are a growing community of believers, so if you live near Portland, we would love to visit us in person at our Sunday morning gathering. Hope to see you there. God bless.